morning, church. If nobody has told you today that they love you, know that God loves you, and we love you too. Um, as we as we recognize sanctity of human life, Yannette and I have come up and just uh, to give just a brief testimony of just what God did in our lives, just how He made Himself evident, how He showed us that He is the Author of life, that He formed us and He knit us together that he knew us before we were born and that he continues to work in our lives. So Yannick's gonna share just from, just from her testimony what the Lord did in our lives, uh, I guess it was about 20 years ago with our second child, Zion Hope. Uh, I'm not sure if all of you, I know we're still learning and meeting um, all of you, so good morning. Um, but Matt and I have been given the gift of seven precious kids. And if you, if you didn't know that or haven't met all of them, um, this side of heaven, seven this side of heaven. But in his sovereign plan, he gifted us with eight kids. Um, but as Matt said, our daughter, Zion Hope, only spent about four hours with us when she was born at 37 weeks. She was our second uh, child after our daughter, Elise. And we were pretty excited um, that our daughter would have a baby sister but at 17 weeks of pregnancy, we found out that our daughter had anencephaly. And anencephaly is a neurological condition where the third hemisphere of the brain does not completely form. At the time, they didn't know how severe it was or how many hours or even years that Zion might live. But two specialists informed Matt and I that she was just not a viable life. Actually, they wouldn't tell us that she was a she or a he. It was just, it was not a viable life and that we needed to terminate the pregnancy. But the Lord was so faithful to lead and to guide us during that time and to give us the strength to trust him and to choose life on his terms, to believe that he had gifted us with Zion and that he had already determined that her life was indeed viable and valuable to him and to us. We knew that God had a plan for her life and our hope was that he would completely heal her. But God's plans sometimes aren't ours and all of us know that I know well. He sees the bigger picture that we don't always get a, a glimpse of. Life sometimes is painful, but we sure have learned that there's no pain that any of us will ever go through that God can't redeem and to use for his glory. So for us, walking through the experience, um, God really wrapped his arms around us and sent the body of Christ to be his hands and feet to us. And during that time, I know for me, um, several scriptures um, were so special, one being Genesis 1.27 that says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Um, and during that time, I know he really ministered to us about being image bearers and that our value isn't based on what man says. It's based on what God says. Um, and the other scripture that really just ministered to me was Psalms 139:13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Zion's almost four hours here on earth with Matt and I changed us forever. During that time, he taught us about what it means to surrender when we can't see the whole picture, to trust him when we can't fully understand his plan, to experience that he is still good even when life is painful. It was Zion's life and her death that opened our eyes to see truly and understand how sacred that life is. 
It was those four precious hours in that hospital room that we were reminded that God is the giver of all life, and both life and death are in his hands. It was holding Zion's sweet life in our arms that showed us that every life is a gift to be treasured, no matter how long or short the life might be. How you and I treat life from birth until death is a reflection of what we believe about God. God says that life is sacred, and he lovingly demonstrated that to us in sending his own son to die the death that you and I deserved when we were dead in our own sin. I think that's probably one of the most impactful lessons the Lord reminded me of. I'm thankful that my value isn't determined by what man says. I'm thankful that man doesn't have the final word, but God does. And when we surrender to his word, he does a work in us that we can't possibly understand, but can only give him glory for. And then as we continue to worship, we know that we have a Lord who loves us, continues to love us, that he has a plan for us, that our plans aren't necessarily what the Lord wants sometimes, but we know that his will will be done and that we can rest assured that his will is perfect and he has given us more than we ever deserve. Nehemiah, as we looked at last week, Nehemiah comes at a part of the historical story of God redeeming a people of him, uh, for himself. And so uh, the people of Israel have been, you know, totally decimated. Jerusalem was ransacked by King Nebuchadnezzar. The people were then thrust into exile, and then the Persian Empire then takes over, and now they're allowed to come back. And so Nehemiah is one of the waves of the return. And though this is not a book primarily on leadership, there are certainly some leadership elements that you can glean from the reading. Uh, And one of those is that Nehemiah was a planner. And not only was he a planner, he was a prayer. And on Wednesday night, as we had a next-gen meeting, and we talked about the, the plans for the next uh, several months in our children and youth areas, I was very transparent with the families, and I said, I'm, I'm a planner. I, I like a plan. I don't know if you're like me, but I have a calendar that's a dry erase calendar at the house. And if you live in my house, I need you to put your stuff on the calendar so I know what's going on because we're all going in different directions. I like a calendar on my phone. I like getting alerts and being like, oh, I have a meeting today. I forgot. It's on my calendar. I'm one of those people. I like to go on vacation with a plan, okay? That may sound horrible to you, but I like to know what we're doing. And number one, where are we eating dinner every morning when I wake up? I want to know what we're having for dinner, okay? So my whole day is planned around food primarily, and uh, it's just the way I like it. And so I'm a planner. And unfortunately, being a planner often causes me to not be so much of a prayer. And I think that's where I was convicted in the reading personally, that I can be all about planning and and negate the fact that I need to be someone who is praying. Terry Muck says this, What frustrates Christian leaders about prayer? Perhaps it has something to do with the difference between leading and praying. When a random sample of people were asked what terms leadership brought to mind, they responded with words like authority, decisiveness, confidence, and power. The word prayer, on the other hand, invoked words such as humility, pleading, powerless. Leaders must see that things get done. They plan, decide, act, evaluate. In most people's minds, leadership means the ability to solve problems. Men and women of prayer, however, operate in a different sphere. With feelings of inadequacy, helplessness, they must predominate. And so Nehemiah, we saw last week, was a man who received some information about Jerusalem. 
And he didn't immediately begin to pray. I mean, he immediately began to pray, and not just pray, but he was planning. And we're going to see that as we continue in the story this morning. As soon as he heard these words, verse 4 of chapter 1, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now I've asked you, are you someone who likes to plan? And now I'm going to ask you, are you someone who likes to pray? As R.C. Sproul put it, we are invited, even commanded to pray. Prayer is both a privilege and a duty, and any duty can become laborious. Prayer, like any means of growth for the Christian, requires work. In a sense, prayer is unnatural to us. Though we were created for fellowship and communion with God, the effects of the fall have left most of us lazy and indifferent towards something as important as prayer. Rebirth quickens a new desire for communion with God, but sin resists the Spirit. Do you struggle to be someone who prays? The spirit and the flesh are in constant turmoil with one another. And so sometimes we must labor in our prayer. This is where we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10. If you have your word, follow along with me. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Verse 7. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that I may give he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare 
of the people of Israel. This is God's word. We'll stop right there. Number one, I want you to see kingdom work, a kingdom work and a divine occupation. It begins here saying that I was cupbearer to the king. His job was not meaningless. He had a position and he had a position of high regard. In fact, he was in charge of making sure that the the king didn't get poisoned. And so he lived in the palace. He was there in the palace. He took care of things and he was highly regarded. But it was a secular job. But it wasn't a meaningless job. It had a purpose behind it. You know, your job is not meaningless. Wherever you end up going tomorrow morning, maybe you feel like it's week after week, day after day, same old this, same old that. And you may think, what is the purpose behind this when God's in it? And it's a divine occupation. There is purpose, an eternal purpose. Tim Keller says it this way, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. Everything we do, whatever the occupation, we do it for the glory of God. As Paul would say in Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. A divine occupation. He was in a high position in the court. He was responsible to choose and to taste the wine before giving it to the king. He would have been more than likely a handsome man. He would have been well-trained in the court etiquette. And he would have been so close to the king that they can have a conversation as you even see now. But even though he lives in the palace, even though he's got it made, even though his occupation has put him way up, he's not satisfied to stay there knowing that the walls need to be rebuilt, that there's a kingdom work that has to be done. And so he is willing to give all of it up to make the difficult journey to Jerusalem and set about the stressful job of rebuilding and mobilizing people for kingdom work. So it all begins with prayer. Are you someone who prays? We can't pray for the will of God and not be willing to do the will of God. I think I've said that over and over and over, but it's something that I have to remind myself of. Because sometimes we like to pray for the will of God, but if we're going to pray for the will of God, then we have to be willing to be obedient to the word of God. Praying God's will doesn't end with words. It ends with obedient works. Praying God's will doesn't end with our words. It ends with our obedient works. We are to follow through with what God has called us to do. So let me ask you, do you see your occupation as an opportunity for a kingdom work or as an obstacle? When you arrive at work, do you see it as an opportunity for kingdom work or do you see it as an obstacle to kingdom work? Do you see your opulence or your great wealth as an opportunity for kingdom work or as an obstacle to kingdom work. Now, for many, like Nehemiah, being in the palace, having all of this wealth and being surrounded by all of this wealth would be, in some regards, a hindrance. Oh, I can't give this up. Maybe someone else will go. I'll, I'll keep praying. And so he responds, needing God to give him this opportunity. 
So how do we respond to a world in need of the gospel, to the walls that are broken down? Well, there's three ways that we respond that are, that are killing our kingdom work, and then there's one way that we can respond that cultivates a kingdom work. So the first one is consuming kills a kingdom work. Consuming kills a kingdom work. Eric Mason said it this way, too many Christians are just consumers. We say, I need a word about this. I need God to help me with that. I need. No, God wants us to do something for his glory in our neighborhoods. We've got to roll up our sleeves. No more consumerism. If church becomes about what we can get, we're doing it wrong. Wow. Consuming kills kingdom work. When the church becomes more fixated on what I can get out of church than what I can give to kingdom work, we've missed it. And how many times do we operate about, well, what do I get? Well, I'm a consumer. I'm in a culture of consuming. And so when it comes to Christianity, I'm wanting it to be better for me. And I'm I'm thinking about me. And so when we begin to be consumers of Christianity rather than, than doers of Christianity, it kills the kingdom work. So consuming kills kingdom work. B, assimilating kills a kingdom work. Assimilating. This is the Christian belief that being more acceptable by the culture is really what we should do as a church. We're going to assimilate in. And, and even in our elders meeting this morning, we talked about how churches and denominations are having to have meetings with their people right now because they're so, they're so trying to assimilate into the culture of this world that they've lost the light of the gospel. You can't be a light if you're hiding it by assimilating into the world and the culture. So assimilating kills a kingdom work. C, separating kills a kingdom work. Religious people try to separate themselves from sinners for fear of catching sin like it's some kind of virus, thinking that sin's out there and not in here, but actually sin we know is in, in our hearts, each and every one of us. And so we, we ignore people, we distance ourselves from people because we don't want to look less pious than we are. We don't want certain people to see us hanging out with certain people because that would kill our reputation. And so what we've done is we've so separated ourselves from a kingdom work that we just isolate ourselves as the church. Kills a kingdom work. Mark 2, 15 through 17. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, had, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We are called to make disciples. And you and I cannot make disciples unless we relationally engage those who need to be discipled. So, engaging cultivates a kingdom work. Consuming kills it, assimilating kills it, separating kills it, but engaging cultivates a kingdom work. And engaging does not happen without intentionality. We must be intentional to engage those whose lives are broken down. It's intentional. The reason I say it's intentional is because it's possible for us to do good works. It's possible for us to even go on mission trips and do missions and hide in our good works and never intentionally have a conversation about Jesus with anyone. That's painful to even say 
But we can do missions and hide behind good works and never intentionally engage for a relational discipleship moment where we bring up Jesus Christ. Why? Because the walls are broken. The walls are broken. People are broken. Oftentimes the church is just full of broken people. Am I right? We need Christ to use us for a kingdom work because there's an enemy who is all about breaching the walls, who is all about keeping people broken. Satan is committed to disrupting the mission of God with complacent Christianity. He's committed to doing everything he can to keep the gospel from going to all people groups. He's committed to hindering a kingdom work because he knows that when the task is finished, the king will return for his kingdom. Isn't that exciting? Man, if he's going to return, if the king's going to return for the kingdom, I want to be all about some kingdom work. How about you? We must be intentional. We've been given a divine occupation. No matter where you are, no matter what you do, God's given you a platform to use your occupation for kingdom work. So, next, kingdom work and a divine opportunity. A divine opportunity. Now, as we begin... In chapter 1, we see that it was the month of Chislev in, chapter, in verse 1. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see it's the month of Nisan. And so basically, this whole story began somewhere in November, December, and now we're picking up somewhere in March, April. So let me put it in, in our terms. So Nehemiah's brother shows up for Thanksgiving meal. He shows up for Thanksgiving meal, and Nehemiah says, Hey, brother. How's life back home? And he says, oh, it's horrible. The people are distraught. The walls are broken down. There's, there's the enemy coming and going. It's just, it's not good. And so he tells them this at Thanksgiving dinner, and then he goes. And so from Thanksgiving through Christmas, through wet January Sundays, through February, and then all the way into, let's say, spring break, there's an opportunity. He's been praying and planning for months, waiting for an opportunity. So what do you do when you're in the middle ground? What do you do in the meantime? What do you do when you're just waiting? You pray and you plan. Pray and plan. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, when you wait on the Lord in prayer, you're not wasting your time. You're not, you are investing it. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that his purposes will be accomplished. However, when the right time arrives for us to act by faith, we dare not delay. We pray and we plan. We wait until the right moment. And here it says the right moment came on a time when the wine was before the king. It sounds like a time of celebration, the queen sitting next to him. It is a time of laughter and smiles, and he says, and I had not been sad before the king, but this day, he saw it on my face. It was weighing on him. Nehemiah has been a first Thessalonian, chapter 5, verse 17 person. He has been praying without ceasing. You know, the word Praying without ceasing, this without ceasing Greek word doesn't mean that there's no break because that's impossible. You ever try to do that? Just pray without ceasing, without breaking or thinking about anything else? Doesn't happen, right? It, it kind of relates itself to a nagging dry cough. Anybody ever had one of those nagging dry coughs? You're like, <coughs> I just can't, 
just, just irritates me. I just I can't get rid of it. It's been going on for months. And you say that to someone, they're like, you should probably go to the doctor. Like, if it's going on for months, go see a doctor. I just can't get rid of this dry cough. It's just nagging. There's this irritant that just keeps making it happen. This is the praying without season. This is what Nehemiah is doing. There is an irritant that is tickling his throat, and he just can't stop praying about it. He is worried about his people, God's people, back in Israel. And so he is praying without ceasing, and when he prays without ceasing, he waits on the moment of opportunity. God prepared Nehemiah for a kingdom work, for rebuilding the walls, and he did it through prayer. He was prepared because of his prayer. For months, four months, in fact, Nehemiah prays and he plans so that when the king asks him why he's sad, he doesn't just give some sad story. He says, here's the plan. Here's what I need. So if you're going to be involved in kingdom work, number one, pray. Begin praying right now. God, what do you have for me? I'm burdened by those that are broken. I'm burdened by those who are lost. I'm praying. I'm going to keep praying. As John Wesley says, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. As E.M. Bounds says, the church is looking for better methods. God's looking for better men. Isn't that true, though? We look for better programs. We look for better methods in the church. Well, if the church tries this, maybe it'll reach more people. Well, what if we have this program? Well, what if we buy pizza? Well, what if we do this or, or that? God's not concerned with our methods. He's concerned with his people. And if his people were a praying people and a planning people who were ready for the opportunity to be a speaking people, there's no telling what God would do through his church. So plan. What steps do I need to take? What education do I need to have? What skills do I need to, to cultivate? What resources are at my, at my disposal? What do I need to acquire today for a kingdom work tomorrow? As we're asking God to do a work and to do his will in the lives of others whose lives are broken, we need to be praying, God, what do you need to do today in me to prepare me for tomorrow? And when it's time, speak up. Speak up. You're going to get the opportunity to talk. Don't miss the opportunity. Speak up and keep praying. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The sadness, the Greek word here, looks a lot like the word evil. And so it's not that he's just walking in, crying, just uncontrollable, can't, can't control himself. But there's a different countenance on his face that day that causes the king to say, are you planning something evil? What's going on? This is not like you. And he takes the opportunity at that moment to pray. What are you requesting? And then he says, so I pray to the God of heaven. It's that moment. Y'all know, you know that moment when, when it, you've been praying for it, and then all of a sudden it happens, and then you're in that moment, and your stomach just, you know, it's almost in your throat, and you go, oh, Lord, help me. This is it, right? You know, this is that moment for Nehemiah. Oh, I need your help because what am I going to say? And so he begins to give his plan. This is it. For months, he's been praying and planning. And when he gives the plan, he knows that it's God's plan accomplished through prayer. You ever had that when you look back and you say, 
That had to be God. There is no explanation for where I'm at today unless God answered prayer. He said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, he kind of pushes a little further, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that I may let, they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that I may, he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He said yes, and the only reason he said yes is that God's good hand was upon me. So, this shows how much Nehemiah has been praying and planning. He knows exactly what he needs. He wants to go and rebuild, and so he gives the timeline. It's about a four-month travel, so I'm going to be gone traveling just eight months. It's going to take 52 days to rebuild the wall. I'm going to have to get everybody together and do all that, so I'm going to be gone for about a year, and, uh, and really, I need safe passage to and fro, so if I, you could give me letters so I could travel safely, and I'm going to need a lot of wood. You know how much a lumber bundle is right now for building a house? I'm going to need a lot of lumber, and so I'm going to need the best lumber. I'm going to need the king's lumber, not just any lumber. I want the best lumber. And so if you could just pay for all that and give me all the expenses paid, that would be great too. And, uh, and for good measure, can I build myself a house out of your lumber? This is basically what he asked. I mean, think about this. You show up to, to your work tomorrow and you go to your boss and you say, hey, number one, I'm going to need a year off paid leave, okay? And I'm going on a mission trip and I'm going to need you to send me reference letters so it looks like I'm actually on official business because I'm not actually allowed in this place without official business. And so I'm going to need you to write some letters so it looks like I'm working and I'm actually going to need you to pay for it and send me the materials and the list and, and, and all those things. And uh, I'll be back in about a year and while I'm there, I'm going to build a house, if you could pay for that too, that would be awesome. What would your boss's response be? If he said, all right, that seems legit, you would go, God's hand was upon that, because there's no way to explain that except for that God did it. And so this is where he is. He's had a divine occupation. He's in the right spot because God has placed him there. He doesn't see it as just a menial task. He's like, God has prepared me for just the time as this. And now he's given me this opportunity. I've been praying about it. I've been planning. And now here it is. And now he's blessed it. And so now I'm off. Things are going great. But there's always discouraging opposition to kingdom work. Kingdom work and a discouraging opposition. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Immediately he's met with opposition. There will always be opposition to kingdom work by those who are against the king. There will always be opposition to kingdom work because there's always those who are against the king. When God acts, Satan inevitably will react. It's a spiritual warfare. 
I don't know anything about warfare at all. You know, I've seen movies, but that's about it. But every time that line pushes forward in one area, where does the reaction come in that area to push it back? Every time in our life when we begin to say, I'm going to do work for the Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to step out in faith, you're going to face opposition. It's going to try to push you right back. Satan will always seek to resist kingdom work, and he does it by enlisting people who are against the king. The number one way in which he combats our faithfulness in kingdom work is by relational interference. Have you ever told someone, like, I feel like God's calling me to do this, and then that person said, oh, that's not it. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't listen to the Lord. And you're like, I thought you were a believer. What? I remember when I told my family that I was transferring from one college to another to pursue ministry. They were not happy about it. Don't you think you should get a real job, Jeff? Maybe y'all feel the same way. <laughs> we do not war against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 12 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we face relational interference, it's always good to remember we're not warring with that person. There's one that's against the kingdom work, and he's always against the king. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, as Paul's writing, he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Every time we step forward in kingdom work, we can expect discouraging opposition, and usually it comes in a relational form. So how does he use people to oppose kingdom work? Number one, his number one way of doing it is bringing disunity. Disunity. Satan's number one strategy in disrupting kingdom work is disunity. He wants to split the church and divide the sheep. He wants to interfere. He wants inner fighting. He wants backbiting. He wants gossip. He wants slander. He wants to ruin our witness in the world by how we treat one another. And this is his number one play. This is why Jesus prayed for our unity in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. He uses disunity. Number two, he uses distraction. He wants to distract you from the king and the kingdom by enticing you with the things of an earthly kingdom. He tried to do the same with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 as he's being tempted. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How often kingdom work is disrupted by our bowing a knee to the wrong kingdom. And finally, discouragement. He simply wants you to give up. He wants you to cease the kingdom work because of hurt feelings, because of relational interference. I just can't believe so-and-so would do that to me. I can't believe they would say that. I can't believe that I'm, I'm being treated the way I'm being treated. I'm, I don't know. How many times have we left a kingdom work because we were discouraged? 
There will always be opposition to kingdom work by those who are against the king. And non-kingdom-minded people put their interest above the welfare of others. You see, it. there's a reason there's an opposition. It says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Non-kingdom-minded people are typically selfish people. You know that? Non-kingdom-minded people are usually selfish people. Pride and self-centeredness, those attitudes, they oppose the kingdom work because the kingdom work is built on being sacrificial. And see, don't be discouraged, for Christ has overcome. Don't be discouraged, Christ has overcome. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the grand meta-narrative of this whole story, Jesus is a better and greater Nehemiah. Jesus had a divine occupation to accomplish the king's work. He was fully God and he was fully man. And there was no one that could be sinless and a spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world. In the grand meta-narrative of Scripture, Jesus is a better Nehemiah because he had a divine opportunity to accomplish a, king, a kingdom work, and he waited for the right time to fulfill it. In John 2.4, he says, My hour has not yet come. Jesus waited for the time to be right, to begin his ministry, and what did he do while he was waiting for it to happen? He was praying and he was planning. Praying and planning, Luke 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. In the grand narrative of Scripture, Jesus had opposition in his mission to accomplish a kingdom work. He was certainly tempted by Satan, as we read, but he was also opposed by a close friend, Peter, whom Satan tried to use to bring disunity distraction and discouragement to the kingdom work of Christ. It says in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day to be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus was not selfish. He cared for the welfare of his people, a kingdom people. Church, we are to be a kingdom-minded people about a kingdom work. God's placed you exactly where he has you for the kingdom. He's going to give you opportunities to speak up, use your words for the kingdom, And you can be sure of this, there will be opposition, but he has overcome.